Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and you are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. It's the best podcast in creation, but you don't have to take my word. Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to mention laser discs, high-def TV. You are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... Recently, we put online the papers of Alexander Hamilton. Mm-hmm. having a moment. It's <laughs> uh, quite a long are, moment. There are a lot of it. <laughs> but this collection, that has not been seen unless you come to the library in person, includes more than 12,000 items, many of them in his own hand, including letters and draft speeches, legal papers. There's even his last letter to his wife, Eliza, written mm. shortly before his duel. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast. Coming soon to thegbbpodcast.com. Really? I'm laughing really? Jamie. Are you promising that? <laughs> I'm laughing because Jamie has oh, given so me a lot. Oh, there's backstory. We will get into that sometime. There's backstory. The, the backstory is that Justin <laughs> has been promising a website for over a year now, and he says it's still coming. It's coming, and I, we've yet to it's see it. It's on its way. I mean, it's not. You'll see it soon. We're very like we're very like 2003 with trying to get a website going. So it's it's pretty awesome, <laughs> but you know, eventually we'll get it. Yeah, I'm working on the Angel Fire right now as we speak. I'm working on it. <laughs> Geocities.com. Here we come. <laughs> The text, the GBB podcast text will be in flames, like the the flaming flames. <laughs> oh my god, I love it. We have to have that. You guys we wait must. for it. So this week, you guys had, I remember, okay, we'll back the train up. Jamie, when you first yeah. tweeted about getting off the phone with Dr. Carla Hayden, I remember seeing the tweet and you were like, this is, you know, the podcast, we started it, we've gotten to do all these great things. And there's moments like this where I realize, like, it hits me, and I'm like, "What am I doing? Like, I just got to speak to, yeah. <laughs> to the Library of Congress. Like, how, library. like, how is this my life? I, it's funny. Like, I've had a lot of those over three years. We've had a lot of those. Like, how is this my life right now? Like, moments, you know? Like, like, how are we on the phone right now? Like, not the phone. Like, how are we skyping right now? Looking at Neil deGrasse Tyson and just like chatting with him. Like, like, how is this happening? Like, what? Like, what's going on? Back up and yeah so when we got off the phone with uh dr hayden it was one of those moments and it was like you know she she might not be like a movie star or like a super celebrity household name but it's sort of like she is historic in such a different way that it's like how how was this my life like how am i sitting down just like having a conversation just you know like shooting the breeze with dr hayden the librarian of congress um, yeah, so I had it was one of those moments. It was like a pinch me because I'm not really sure this is really happening. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite part of it was how real she was, just like 
it really was just like having a conversation with somebody that you bumped into in a coffee shop and you find out what they do and you're like, oh, that's really cool. Tell me more. Because she just, I mean, and she just knew so much. I mean, she just rattled off statistics. I think she must have corrected me like three times and it felt good (laughs) because I was just like, oh, I got really close. Like I was just, you know, estimating and I'd be like a couple percentage points off. But she knew she knew those answers. Man, that woman's smart. So, so yeah. for those of you who don't know, I mean, you clicked on the link or, you you know, we showed up in your feed and you saw the title. So, you know, the name Librarian of Congress, Dr. Carla Hayden. Um, she is the current Librarian of Congress. She uh, assumed the position in September of 2016. So she just passed her one year anniversary in the role. Um, she was nominated um, by President Obama in his last year in office. Uh, What I mean by her being historic, though, is that she's only the 14th librarian of Congress since 1802. 1802 and only 14 people have had that job. So, number one, that's pretty cool. That's historic. Number two, in that 200 years in 14 positions, she is the first woman. She is the first African-American. She is the first person of color to hold the position. She is the first actual functioning, you know, academically trained librarian to hold that position, ironically, in more than 60 years. The the gentlemen who have had the position since then have been, I, I, I should have known this, They're, I mean, the politicians or they come from some other industry. Um, and they were, you know, nominated for the position by whoever the president was at the time uh, to run the Library of Congress. She is actually a librarian. She comes from the public library system in Baltimore City. Um, she was the president of the American Library Association for two years. So she's a librarian. She knows her stuff. She's not there to, like, run it like a business. She's there to run it like a library. Um, and she, like, like Sam said, like, she is just... She's so down to earth. She's so friendly. She's so chatty. Um, and uh, like she's she's been at the center of of a lot. She's been at the center of a lot of controversy. She's been at the center of a lot of news, like, uh, you know, nationally. Um, um, what do I want to say? Like, so let me explain what I mean by this instead of just being nebulous. So she was she was the um, head of the Enoch Pratt public library in Baltimore City during the unrest following the killing of Freddie Gray. And she made headlines, you know, when the city sort of fell into um, a really dark time. You know, it was it was not a happy place to be at that moment. You know, the city was sort of um, a, a lot of unhappy and unpleasant truths were coming to the surface. She made the decision to leave the libraries open. Um, and they became places of refuge, places of, you know, community, the communities rallied around the libraries. They were one of the only places that were open. Businesses were shut down. Um, schools were closed. Uh, she made the decision to leave the libraries open and that it sort of became the, the centerpiece of, of many communities that, you know, they, people came together, people organized, people came to just find that quiet place, um, And, you know, we talk about this, but like she says, looking back, like it wasn't the right decision. It was the only decision. It was the only thing that she could have done in that in that in that situation. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So you really set that up. (laughs) 
You really said this interview. <laughs> so here's my. We're just here. We're just the eye candy. <laughs> so, you know. Exactly. He's the brains. We're the eye candy or something. And here's my little contribution. She also mentions who the Beyonce of books is. And you're going to hear that. Beyonce right after of the books. Jump. It's incredible. You, you, you wait. It's going to be right after the jump. We're going to play that interview for you right now. Hope you enjoy. The author of Captain Underpants. Dave Pilkey. <laughs> who, who was the hit of the book festival this year. Oh, that's so good to hear. <laughs> he was just phenomenal. We're calling him the Beyonce of books. Uh, he is kind <laughs> of a superstar. I will give him that. Uh, he signed and was so gracious for oh, three hours. Oh, that's fantastic. Dr. Hayden, um, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. It's just a pleasure. Well, thank you. And I'm one day away from uh, celebrating my first year as Librarian of Congress. And I, so it's really I saw a, a that. wonderful thing to be talking in general about the library. It's a happy oh. anniversary, I guess, is the appropriate thing to say. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and um, people have asked what's been the biggest surprise. And the biggest surprise has been that there's so many things to discover. And even people who've worked here for decades are still surprised when another curator or librarian finds something. <laughs> We're absolutely going to get to that because I want to know some of the things, um, some of the things that you might or might not have time to explore about the library. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but I wanted to start off uh, sort of, I guess, by asking you what drew you originally, I mean, obviously it was a love of books and a love of reading, but what drew you toward libraries and library science? When I found out that there was a profession librarianship that allowed me to combine several of the things that I was passionate about, uh, the power of reading, the enjoyment that you can get from taking a journey through books, and then serving people and being able to share that with other people and help them in their lives, because I really believe that getting knowledge and information broadens your opportunities. And so this profession of librarianship allowed me to combine all of those things. And I must tell you, it's like being a kid in a candy store <laughs> when you are now working with the world's largest library. Oh, I can only imagine. Um, 164 million items on nearly 840 miles of bookshelves. 840 so miles? Of bookshelves. So if you stretch those bookshelves from Washington, D.C., along the interstate system, and I just got back from a trip from Washington to Chicago and Illinois, you could travel all the way from Washington, D.C. to Davenport, Iowa, before Holy reaching sense. the end. So you could just walk I, on I have books. a 12-hour oh. trip to Illinois from Washington, so think about that. Oh, I'm salivating, imagining. You could browse those book. shelves all the way. That would be a really nice road trip, right? It would like, be a great road trip. <laughs> just all these books for you to look at. Very all dangerous, I guess, for the driver. And, and all types of other things. And this has been just the joy and one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk about what the library has. There are collections 
the largest collection in the world of maps mm-hmm. and comic books. That's one that people might not realize that the library has. Well, the world's largest collection I'm, of comic books. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead because I do want to ask you about that. And I know that you guys recently partnered with AwesomeCon here in DC, and you had the Library of Awesome, where you did showcase a lot of. I say a lot. It wasn't a fraction of the collection that you have, but you showcased a lot of the more well-known and famous books and pieces of art that you have. Um, is that something that you're gonna try to do more of? More of that pop culture type programming and exhibits? Yes, and we've started with looking at what's going on in the country, what's going on in the world, what's going on in DC, like the Awesome Con conference, and tying in our collections. We're gearing up right now for the all-star baseball game that's going to happen in 2018 here in Washington, DC. And we thought, oh, this would be a wonderful time to bring out things from our collection of baseball history and memorabilia. And that includes a wonderful collection of baseball cards, starting from the very first baseball card that was ever printed. And the collection of Branch Rickey, who was the baseball scout. And we have his scouting reports on players like Hank Aaron, Ernie Banks, Sandy Kovacs, you can imagine what it's like to read the scout talking about the promise that Hank Aaron might have (laughs) and saying, wow, he was a good scout. The Jackie Robinson collection. So we'll be bringing out all of those things and tying them to this wonderful celebration of America's pastime, baseball. So that you know, the talk having the baseball programming, having the the comic book programming, that's a it's a relatively new direction for the library. So I'm just wondering why why is that an important step to take? Do you think? Well, the library has had a history though of programming. Uh, for instance, the concert series that has expanded uh, with the collection of musical instruments that the library has the largest collection and i have to laugh because it's always the largest and the most and the biggest but it's true own it uh, own flutes, it uh, <laughs> and the stradivarius violins and all of the sheet music going from mozart to gershwin and things like that so the programming we're just really expanding and enhancing the programming and using opportunities to make people aware of what the library has and also our online presence. There's so many things that are digitized and available to be even downloaded uh, from the library's website, which we kind of worked on a little bit the last year to make it a little more robust and uh, user responsive. So these types of efforts are building on the programming that the library has been doing and just expanding it. Yeah, um, that's that's amazing. So, I have I've worked in libraries in my past. It it was my passion, um, and again, I'm kind of leaping ahead in what Jamie and I had thought we would talk to you about a little bit. But um, so, I'm very drawn to that. I actually looked in to studying library science when I when I went to the university, and I changed my mind. <laughs> 
And the sole reason was that, at, at least at the time, I'm going to age myself here. So that was about 20 years ago. Um, at the time, we were paying librarians with all of that education and all of that work less than than even teacher salaries, which we know are way too low, right? Um, Very similar uh, dynamic in mm -hmm. terms of the requirements to give the service and what the fiscal <laughs> compensation is, and that's <laughs> – we're definitely part of that. Yes, and and that's unfortunate because it, it did kind of make me rethink, and then I went down a much different path. Um, but but you have my dream job is what I what I was getting to was I, I always dreamt that I would someday be the librarian of the Library of Congress, um, and then as I got older, I realized, wait a minute these aren't librarians who've been doing this. So I want to talk a little bit about that dynamic. So you were appointed by President Obama and uh, you know, I paid attention when all of that was happening. Again, much older, paying attention to the politics at this point. And there was a bit of resistance to that appointment. And I, I realized that a lot of that was just the partisan resistance that we always have when, when someone is appointing someone in that office. But you're the first actual librarian to be appointed in over 40 years. You're also the first African-American. 60 years, actually. 60 years. First African-American and the first woman. And that blows my mind because I think it's what, over 80% of librarians are women? 80, uh, librarianship is one of what's been called the feminized profession where mm -hmm. over 85% of the workforce is female. Wow. And the management and leadership of the profession doesn't reflect that fact. Mm -hmm. And so the significance of a woman being the 14th Librarian of Congress since 1802 <laughs> has been noted <laughs> <laughs> by the profession. And then, of course, being an African-American, uh, I noted that very early on and even in my swearing in remarks that it was personally very significant because of the long history of denying African-Americans the opportunity to learn to read mm -hmm. in law as they during slavery. So yep. that was a double part. And then having a librarian of the library has benefited from having different librarians of Congress who have different experiences. There have been lawyers, scholars, and historians, and mm -hmm. so I'm the third librarian of Congress who has a public library background. Actually, the other two, one was the head of the Cleveland Public Library, and one of the longest-serving librarians of Congress was the head of the Boston Public Library. Mm. So at different times in the library's history, you've had different people bring different skills, I think, to the position. Yeah, and, and that's that's probably beneficial. Um, you know, and, and I work I work in a professional environment. Um, and obviously, I think hopefully, obviously, I'm a woman. Um, and one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about is because I definitely see you as a bit of a role model. Well, first, you stole my dream job. So I'm watching you. But but I see you kind of, you, you just broke through that barrier that had been there. And that honestly, I didn't realize that barrier was there until you took this job. And I'm looking at you when you got appointed and I'm looking at your background because that's what I do. 
And I'm like, holy crap, I bet there's a bunch of women with this type of experience and background and why were none of them ever considered, right? And then, so how do you handle that? Because I know I'm not the only person that looks at you as a bit of a role model. Um, so how do you handle that? Do you just kind of try to ignore it? <laughs> or is oh, you it something can't you ignore it because it means so much to so many young people that are in the profession and even thinking of getting into the profession. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to attend the American Library Association conference that just met in Chicago in June, and their attendance was about 20,000 library staff and workers and people interested in publishing. So you had about 25,000 people. And the number of young librarians of different genders that said this meant a lot to them to see a librarian was really what it was that in this Mm -hmm. position was something that, that inspired me and made me uh, very pleased and proud that they would take something from this appointment. And it certainly is something that I'm going to try to make sure that I don't disappoint them. Uh, Well, I can tell you from my perspective so far, you're doing a good job. (laughs) Well, I have a lot of good people working with me. And if that's been the other, when people say, what's your biggest surprise? It's been, wow, here's a, a collection that hadn't really been cataloged or delved into in years and look what we found to what's your biggest joy and it's been working with the staff members at the Library of Congress. You're talking about a crackerjack staff and people who have dedicated their professional careers to an institution that has so much to give and so that's been the biggest joy. Good. Uh, you, you you talked about your background in public libraries, and I wanted to give a shout out to the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore, which is where you came from. Uh, for the, Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and it, it, I used to live down the street from the Central Branch in downtown Baltimore, and that oh. building itself is, I think, one of the unsung treasures of the city. It's just beautiful, and most people, unfortunately, don't even know it's there. Um, but I'm curious, you know, in terms of your leadership and and how a library operates day to day, how different is something like the Library of Congress versus local libraries that are around the country that more people are familiar with? And before I get into that, I want to let you know that the Central Library, that is the State Library for Maryland, has received state funding and it's being totally renovated as we speak. Uh. And the it's open at at the same time, and it's really going to be wonderful. So if you get a chance to visit in the next year or so, I think you'll be very pleased and surprised. And they're doing a lot to let everybody know uh, yeah. that they are open and ready for business. And so it's going to be great. And what other public libraries, when I went to that same conference and even visiting Mississippi for the Mississippi Book Festival, Recently, I was just in Illinois again, uh, went to Massachusetts and met with local librarians from public school libraries, university libraries. They're all seeing the Library of Congress as part of a network of library resources and are really excited about getting our live streaming programming that's 
going out to them when we have authors here. The traveling exhibits that will be going out to all types of libraries. So it's really a supplement and an enhancement for local libraries of all types. And that really energizes the staff here too. Hmm. Um, during your time there in, in Baltimore at the library, uh, you also made headlines for uh, keeping the libraries open during the unrest after, after Freddie Gray. Um, looking back, not going to ask whether that was the right decision, because I think that it was, but was it a difficult decision to make at the time? The only difficulty in deciding that, and it was a right, right, the right decision because of the community response, there were people lined up at the door to get into the library after the unrest, the major part of the unrest, to mm-hmm. apply for jobs, to have a safe place, and it became, during that crucial first week, the only place in the community that was open and became a food distribution center and a place for even the media to come into and charge their phones and just conduct interviews and all types of things. It was a lifeline. And when you think about what that library meant to that and means to that community, the only difficulty was making sure that the staff members who were going to staff the library felt uh, safe and that they wanted to do it. And so I made the commitment that I would be there because I didn't want to ask staff to do anything that I wouldn't do. (laughs) And um, so my only difficulty was when to break it to my mom. (laughs) So I waited until right as I was leaving out the door (laughs) Uh, <laughs> and she's a former social worker, so she just told me to make sure I had napkins and water. <laughs> and then two or three days later, she was there with me and the staff handing out fruit Aww. at the information desk. So that was the only uh, part that caused us to say, well, can, can we can we open it? But we had staff members from other branches in the system, including the central library that came and volunteered to be there too. Yeah. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that the Library of Congress doesn't have that immediate and close connection to a local community like working in Baltimore does or or other public libraries around the country. Um, And if that's true, is that something that you miss? Well, actually, the Library of Congress is reaching out and attracting people in the immediate community. We started a film series this summer right on the lawn between the Jefferson Building, which has been called one of the most beautiful buildings in Washington, D.C., and the Supreme Court Building. And we showed films from the National Film Registry. Each year, 25 films are selected to be preserved and really celebrated as uh, cultural Uh, icons in film and it was something to see people with their picnic baskets their dogs their children and enjoying on a summer evening this big screen with uh, this movie like back to the future and free popcorn and water and things like that so we are making sure that a lot of the programming that happens is something that the people who live in the area can take advantage of too. 
Excellent. Um, well, I'm going to go back since since you are in D.C. Um, and we just cannot get away from politics a little bit in there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your somewhat famous now resistance to the Patriot Act. Um, and I think more correctly, it was one clause in there, the one that allows the FBI and I think also the Justice Department to have access to all the records of all public library card holders. Now, I am a firm believer that we have to find that right balance between making sacrifices for our safety and greater good and protecting our personal right to privacy. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what was it about that that concerned you? What can can they access and why did you, I mean, because you really fought, like there were arguments that I, well, you know. Well, and I have to clarify that I was the president of the American Library Association at the time. Yes. And I was representing in that role, the Library Association, 65,000 members. Yes. Who were concerned when the Patriot Act was uh, first enacted that Section 215 that talked about business records and the government's access to them did not include the opportunity for the person who was being reviewed to be notified or even institutions. So there were some things in that section mm -hmm. that librarians and people who were concerned about interest in a subject and intent to do something might be confused by exactly. just looking mm -hmm. at the records without uh, due process or that. And that's what the library association and joined with other groups were really very, I think, vocal about saying as we look at public privacy and also the public interest and safety, mm -hmm. that there is a balance. And that's and in the intervening years, the that aspect has uh, been alleviated and the library community is very pleased with how that has been handled. Excellent. And well, thank you, by the way, for, for representing that interest. Um, I have, I, I, I think of all of the ways that, that something I look at or, or check out of the library could be misconstrued. Right. I read all sorts of bizarre stuff. I'm just a curious person. Um, right. And geez, the number of, gosh, weapons I have researched online because they came up in a video game and I didn't know what they were, right? Somebody might think I'm <laughs> some sort of crazy person if they look, just looked at that and saw, oh, this woman is reading all of this stuff. We got to start watching her. That That's a big concern to me. Well, it stifles curiosity. Natural, right. Yeah. Curiosity is natural, especially if you want to, things are unfamiliar, you're hearing things in the news, you're not sure what they are. And we know now that they're, and that was in 2003, 2004, mm -hmm. before some of the powerful search mechanisms that we have now were available. Mm -hmm. And so that was another concern. And now you can tailor your searches and things like that. So it was even a different time in terms of technology with that i i wonder um as long as we're talking somewhat politically not without getting too political um i wonder if you could talk about the how, how a, a change in administration 
um, regardless of who the administration is, how that changes your job and how it changes, what effects that has on the library as a whole, especially since the outgoing administration was the one that appointed you. I'm just wondering, generally speaking, what changes does something like that have? It doesn't have a change because it's the Library of Congress and it's a presidential appointment. Mm-hmm. But the library itself is the Library of Congress. It's in the legislative branch of government. Mm-hmm. And it, of course, serves Congress. And there's a special congressional research service. I call them the special forces of the library because <laughs> they are, I mentioned the other staff members are crackerjack. These people think SWAT. <laughs> All of that. I mean, these are researchers in every area, and they serve Congress and staff to help them uh, with whatever they need in terms of research. And the operation of the library really supports not only that role, but also building a national collection that has an international reach. So we are whatever since 1800, uh, when the library was established, have been an institution that concentrates on that. Excellent. That's, that's actually good. It's a relief to know that, that it, it can, it, cause I, I mean, and, and I did actually know it was part of the legislative branch, but I'm telling you, those lines are getting blurry. <laughs> I get a little nervous. Um, nice to have library in your name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe I should rethink these career choices. Um, but so you you mentioned that the the library w- was um, founded. Gosh, it was over two hundred years ago. So yeah. and times are constantly changing. And we kind of alluded to some of the things that that you've some of the programs you've been been working on that are a little bit more modern, like pop culture related, comic books, baseball, movies. Um, but. And I hear conversations about trying to modernize the library, but I never quite hear what are we doing to modernize it? Like, so can you just give us an idea of, of kind of the behind the scenes stuff that you're doing that's, that's making it easier for us to use the library, making it, it just um, kind of up to date with what we're used to, to the Google age, so to speak. Well, the Google age allows you to search collections. And mm-hmm. what the library has been working on is making its collections accessible online. And we're focused on collections that can't be found anywhere else. Recently, we put online the papers of Alexander Hamilton. He's mm-hmm. having a moment. <laughs> it's uh, quite a there, long moment. A lot of it. <laughs> but this collection, that has not been seen unless you come to the library in person, includes more than 12,000 items, many of them in his own hand, including letters and drafts of speeches, legal papers. There's even his last letter to his wife, Eliza, written Mm. shortly before his duel, Mm. and his draft of George Washington's farewell address, because he actually wrote quite a bit for George Washington. And when you think of putting those types of things, we just put up this year uh, the papers of three additional U.S. presidents, the papers of Sigmund Freud, and 25,000 historic maps from communities across America, the first installment of a half a million historic maps. These collections that only the Library of Congress has are where we're putting the emphasis in our modernizing, which is another word that people 
use for saying that we are putting things online and using the latest technology. So we are doing quite a bit with that. Excellent. Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> um, that brings up a, a question I've had for a while. Um, you talk about putting the pres the presidential papers that are in your collection, uh, making them more available to the public. How much of a collaboration is there between the Library of Congress and the National Archives? And do you guys oh. ever sort of like get into fisticuffs about where items should go? <laughs> like who whose collection is better? Oh, no, better? we don't, because one, our missions are pretty clear, and we have started what I've learned in Washington. There are gangs of eight and four and everything. There's yeah. a new gang in town. Okay. It's called the, it's the Gang of Three, All and right. it's the Library of Congress, the National Archives, that's uh, my colleague David Ferriero, and the Smithsonian, my other colleague David Skorkin. And in fact, we are meeting regularly and working on projects that we can do together because the National Archives, which was started after World War II, holds the official records of the United States government. And mm -hmm. Franklin Roosevelt was the first president to establish his own library, and that's the presidential libraries are connected to the archives right. because those are official records. And the Smithsonian, when you think about it, it collects actual items or material or dresses, and planes, objects, yeah. things in that sense. And the Library of Congress has manuscripts and uh, letters and other things as well. So the three institutions are really the backbone of the information network and cultural aspect of Washington. It's the brainy gang of three. That's a gang I can support and get behind. This I think. is our gang of three. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a close and, and very, uh, the only competition is friendly in terms of things like a progressive historical culinary experience for young people. Yeah, I love the it. The National Archives has uh, program where they have kids in and they talk about the archives and then Mr. Ferrio makes pancakes for the kids. I've, well, been, Thomas, I've been to that. Have you? I have. Well, I, now I took we're my, going to... You're, you're doing you it too? Your, well, we're going to do Thomas Jefferson and his recipe for macaroni and cheese. Nice. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're negotiating and then we thought that the Smithsonian could do something with either the Nat uh, Natural History Museum, maybe that's where they sleep, or they, they have a variety of things. That they, they do. Bring. So this would be this progressive I love it. kind of dinner for young I, people. I love it. Yeah, I took my daughter to the sleepover at the National Archives, and it was an amazing experience for me, just as, as, as much as it was for her. But yeah, I think, you know, the highlight many people think might have been sleeping beside, you know, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Um, it, it was, I think the highlight might have been getting served pancakes by the archivist of the United States in the morning. That was well, pretty darn cool. Now the Librarian of Congress will serve I, macaroni and cheese I'm gonna have in to go. the Jefferson building. I'm so going to have to be there for we're, that. We're just working out the timing because I keep <laughs> saying, David, you know, macaroni and cheese is kind of a nighttime thing. <laughs> so then maybe they do the Smithsonian sleep over there and then have breakfast with you. Oh my goodness. I so love this is, this is this is what's going on now. This is you should know. This oh. is 
Talk I love about it. Politics. I love it. This is so much better than politics. This is this is where the real the, the gem of the library system is right there. <laughs> That's amazing. So um, we're working on all kinds of things because the Library of Congress, for instance, has the archive and the papers of the Wright brothers, mm-hmm. and the archives actually has the the documentation when they filed for their patents. The patents, right. So they have that. And then, of course, the Smithsonian has the plane. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to think, okay, how, how can do this? So what are the things that we have that we're calling connecting collections? I love it. How can we collect our connections? It, it amazes me that it's taken until 2017 to get something like that rolling. Well, it's you think when you think about the fact that these are big institutions, that have a lot of things to do to even get their materials ready for public use. That's why we have to work together and say, what are some of the things that we can do that wouldn't overtax the staff and take us away from what we need to do? And that's already there waiting. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of the conversation here, you, you mentioned about some of your favorite places and things in the library. I'm wondering, do you get a chance to just sort of wander and explore? Because I know there's a lot more to the museum than guests and, and just the general public are, are able to see. Um, and if so, do you have a favorite part of the library? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> and that's the good part. Now, one of my uh, favorite parts, though, is the preservation laboratory. Mm-hmm. It looks like a surgery, <laughs> and you have people in lab coats, and they are treating these historic manuscripts and documents, and they are preserving them and cleaning them, and they can tell you what they're working on. This is a 12th century Ethiopian manuscript, mm-hmm. because half of the library's collection is in languages other than English. Mm-hmm. It has it's- an extensive international I didn't realize it was and half. worldwide collection. Yes, I mean the aspect of repatriating materials to countries that have had difficulties. We were able to give materials back in electronic format to the country of Afghanistan recently. Hmm. Some of the things had been destroyed, and yeah. we have them at the Library of Congress. So you have uh, experts in preservation and conservation and just going in there and seeing that work being done and the delicacy of the work but then the ordinariness of it too a big sink where you're washing a certain type of paper yeah with dove (laughs) oh it's like whoa so those are the types of things that really are exciting and we hope to replicate some of those experiences for the public and especially for young people as we look at how can we give them a peek into that aspect of the library's work. So we might have a one of the labs that people can look into with glass and talk to the preservation mm, staff member cool. and they can explain it. So those types of interactive uh, exhibits basically yeah. Or what we're looking at now. I love that idea. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's fascinating when you think about why this paper has lasted 400 years and this paper 
Yeah. Just 50 years. What, and, what is it about the difference? The, the aspect of, of conservation that just blows my mind. I used to work in a museum, one of them down there in D.C., and so I, we did we had our own conservation lab and our own conservators, and it's, um, it's, it's amazing the different skills that you need to have. Like paper conservation is completely different from textile converse conservation, yeah. which is completely different from like, uh, you know, a three-dimensional wooden object conservation. And I don't think people really, really realize what goes into keeping these objects and these papers and, and everything that, that we enjoy today, keeping them, making sure that they're going to be around for generations from now. And that also relates to the National Registry, the film registry, when you have one of the earliest mm -hmm. examples of film, but it's in nitrate, and what has to happen to make sure that that is preserved and not damaging right. uh, people and resources. The David Packard Center in Culpeper, Virginia, of course, it's the world's largest mm -hmm. <laughs> conservation and sound and film conservation facility. It's something to see what they're able to do with film and recordings that are very fragile and yeah. need to be preserved. And so that's another aspect. How do yeah. you do Jerry Lewis, who just passed, his whole movies, the Library of Congress has those. Oh. Yeah. I, shining, shining a light on that process, I think, is is amazingly important and i think it would really enlighten so much of the public who just doesn't understand what's involved with keeping these things around right so, yeah that's... and they see a lot of things in their own attics or mm -hmm. their uh, relatives and that you know maybe not put the scotch tape on the, <laughs> the old photograph and things like that but to really help people in terms of preserving their own memories and when you have national tragedies and people talking about losing their family photos and things like that and floods and that you really get a sense of what that means and how maybe yeah. you can help them uh, think about digitizing things early or putting them away or just other ways of you know yeah preserving mm -hmm. their own memories yeah absolutely we um we also started off by talking a little bit about the national book festival which just passed um but you, I saw a bunch of pictures on Twitter of you making the rounds, meeting everybody. Um, and part of that is, I mean, the, the lineup of authors that come to that event every year is just phenomenal. Every year it just impresses me. Um, but, you know, in, in the political dealings you have and in the, the regular day-to-day -day operations of the library and meeting all of these authors, do you, do you still get excited about people that you really admire? Like, is there, are there any times oh when sort goodness. of you get tongue-tied? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Yeah? It, uh, yeah, tongue-tied. <laughs> and people that, uh, Ernest Gaines, who is uh, a legendary author, and to finally meet him. And J.D. Vance, who is really working on uh, capturing a history that hadn't been had highlighted and has been almost a textbook, uh, mm -hmm. his hillbilly elegy. Mm -hmm. Those types of people. And then, of course, David McCullough. Yeah. <laughs> who said that he's done most of his research. In fact, the entire book for the Wright Brothers was done at the Library of Congress. So meeting people like that, yeah, I get a little... I think the term is a fangirl. That's it. <laughs> yeah, okay. you got it. <laughs> that, that's the one. So I'm like that with some authors. That's amazing. Uh -huh. I love to hear that. I love it. 
Um, I know we are running out of time with you, so I think we've, uh, Sam, you want to end it out? I, I, yes, we, okay. we, we always try to end with a, a very personal question. <laughs> um, so, uh, the, the one I want to ask you is since you've lived in both New York city and Chicago, which style of pizza do you prefer? Uh, it has to be Chicago because I was there recently, that deep dish. Yeah. I must tell you, there, there's a lot there. But thin <laughs> crust in New York is very good, too. Yeah. But there's filling. something about that dip, deep dish. That, okay. Ah, it's a meal. <laughs> it certainly is. I will not deny you that. It is a meal. <laughs> <laughs> well, and d- then do you have a, an opinion on the hot dog styles? Because they, they both have hot dog styles, too. Well... I I don't I'm not so much into the hot dogs. I must okay. I must confess that That's that right. when I leave to my mom, she's an expert at that, and so she swears by Nathan's. Okay, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm familiar with Nathan's. Yes, yeah, that's that's her, you know, New York hot dog. So All right, I'll go with her on that. Fantastic, <laughs> Dr. Go with hey. mom. When in doubt, side <laughs> with mom. That is always that's a safe I... bet. Yes. Right. Dr. Hayden, thank you so much for taking the time. This this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate it too. And I will definitely let a lot of people know about Geek Dad. I have to imagine that for a librarian accepting the position of, you know, Library of Congress librarian, that's got to be similar to walking into the Oval Office as the president. Am I right? Has to be. I, yeah, I mean, in in your field, what you went to school yeah. for, what you trained as, like, there's probably, I mean, there are other positions that you could hold, you know, but like, if that's what you aspire to, there's nowhere else to go. I mean, where else is there to go as a librarian, right? Yeah, I mean, like, other libraries, obviously, but like, do? that's sort of like the yeah. pinnacle, I would, I would imagine. Wow. I would imagine. It's just, um, just an incredible, yeah, wow. One of the cool things, and Sam, jump in and, and you know talk over me if you if you want. But the uh, I, I it's awesome that the library is getting involved with a lot more um, like pop culture programming and and programming and events that sort of appeal to a wider audience. Um, they partnered with AwesomeCon in DC this year, which was uh, it's like a Comic Con here in DC, and so the library partnered with them, and they had a uh, an exhibit in the library that highlighted um, their really impressive comic book and comic art collection that most people don't even realize is there. Uh, and it was cool. I went to it and it's like they just had the, everything just set up on a table. And I'll, I'll link to it because I did a live a live stream, a Facebook live stream walking through the exhibit. And it was cool because these weren't like facsimiles or reproductions. Like some of these were original comics. And you would go through and it was just a table set up and like I did the math in my head and I was like, that's over a million dollars of comics just sitting right there, you know, and that's just like wow. the shape, like a shaving tip of the iceberg of what they have in their collection. But and, and they had a they had an event um, around AwesomeCon where Linda Carter was in town, Wonder Woman from the, the 70s show, and she was in town for AwesomeCon, but she was also did an event with the library. Like she spoke at the library Um and that came out in our talk too with Dr. Hayden. There, there, that's like a real push that she's she's looking for is like to make these more, you know, pop culture events and and get more people into the library, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I she was talking about because you you asked her if she was going to try to do more of that stuff, and I was really intrigued by the little like progressive dinner oh. thing that they've got going on, um, like. Uh, 
It, it was with, uh, it was who else na- was it? Sorry. It was the I'm National down. Archives and the uh, Smithsonian. Yes. Yes. And so the, along with the Library of Congress, they're going to do this event where, you know, they just kind of like that progressive dinner date. I'm sure we've all heard yeah. of those. They're, they're kind of, you know, considered the thing to do when you run out of romantic <laughs> ideas, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you go one place for the appetizer, you go somewhere for dinner, you go somewhere else for dessert, maybe somewhere else for drinks or coffee. Um, and, and you just make a whole day or yeah. evening of it. So it, it was that kind of the f- idea. And yeah, I loved that. I would totally, and I wasn't kidding. Like I would, I would be there in a heartbeat. So, um, yeah, we did. And I, I said this, and I'm not going to repeat the whole story, but my, my daughter and I did the sleepover at the archives a few months ago where it's where you, you, they have a whole event planned and they have lots of little, like a scavenger hunt and you learn about the archives and you get to sleep in the rotunda right next to the, uh, the constitution. And in the morning, the archivist of the United States makes you pancakes. So that's what she was referring to in which, yeah, it's awesome. Don't laugh. Cause it's awesome. Um, so she was saying like, they already have this event and she, she wants to have a similar event, but where she makes her famous mac and cheese and then they were talking about how they want to have you know all like what 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 was it called the triumvirate i called it like the nerdy triumvirate or something you know like the the uh the the the, the, yeah the trinity the holy trinity of nerds um so it's like she said you know like people would they would start at the at the smithsonian and have some sort of an event then everybody would go to the library of congress and have her mac and cheese for dinner and then they'd sleep over at the archives and have the pancakes in the morning and i was like that is the nerdiest thing i've ever heard and i can't wait for it to be to become a reality (laughs) oh my god pretty sweet i really want to do it you'd be you'd be all over that 100 percent. oh i would totally go and sit if you if you would go and sit in a movie theater for every single star wars movie for 24 hours you would 100 percent do yeah speaking of i'm (laughs) gearing myself up in case they do it again (laughs) no no here's one quick i will not watch those two prequels ever again (laughs) jamie here's one question i have and this is a serious question if Donald Trump got to nominate or appoint a Library of Congress librarian, who would he pick? <laughs> my, I don't think he. My guess is, my guess is Jesse the Body. <clears throat> <laughs> he was a governor, though. Clay, he was a governor, though. So I, he I, he probably knows his way around a library. So let's not slam on true. Jesse the Body Ventura too much. Uh, <laughs> Donald, but he's, he's not, not a librarian. librarian, nor is he a historian or a scholar like they've true, all been. True, true. So that's a terrifying thought. <laughs> Thank you for that, <laughs> Justin, because here I am, like, absolutely starstruck. Uh, as I told her, she she has my job. She better do a good <laughs> job with it. She stole it from me because clearly I was the next choice. <laughs> but... I'm so excited that it's a woman, that it's a woman of color, that it's such a well-educated and professional librarian. Her whole career has involved libraries in one form or another. And I mean, you can't get a better pick than that. So I'm kind of disappointed that she's the first one in a way that it's not a lifetime appointment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So So you, yeah, Justin, you asked if, if... 45 gets a chance to nominate he he will not unless something unforeseen happens because she has a 10-year term um 
and nice. what good yeah and so this good. is the first though what sam was mentioning there is what this is the first time it's not a lifetime appointment appointment everybody the reason there's oh, only been 14 since bad. 1802 is because they've been it's like the supreme court that's it's a lifetime appointment so um the only way they would have left the position is if they died or if i i guess they could right. have retired um right yeah. But she, I don't know, and I don't know why. Was that was that an act of Congress, or was it a law that they passed? Do you know why? No, I think that was that was another thing that I believe that President Obama changed, and I think that was on purpose. Like I get his to keep point, it fresh, like to keep it fresh, but also because we talked with Dr. Hayden quite a bit about modernizing right. the library, and you can't do that when you've you know been there for 50 years right like uh, unless you're super on top of technology and all the latest trends of everything you do kind of need that fresh take Mm -hmm. coming in periodically so i I, but i mean there's always the chance that she'll get that is true appointed and say yes that's true fingers crossed fingers that's possible because fingers crossed so far she's she's doing awesome she is awesome so Mm -hmm. if if you enjoyed our interview uh, their interview, I guess I had, I'll, I'll take credit for it. It was on me. If you enjoyed my fantastic interview that I did, please let us know on Twitter at the GBB podcast and Facebook at the GBB podcast as well. And you can follow me. I'm Justin at 140 Justin C and we can forget about the other guys. And we'll see you. <laughs> Jamie, why don't you, why don't you guys say your, uh, social media? I'm Jamie at the Roarbots. Uh, Samantha at Samantha Fisher. All right, and we will see you next time right here on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.